Knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner. Like, He's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi and welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp and my co-host is Angela Whitehorn. And if you've listened to us before, I've probably said that every single week for the last uh, year. (laughs) You've almost been with us for a year, Angela, because I think it was the end of May. It sure was. I remember it was uh, right at the end of May. It was that last weekend in May that uh, I was with you for the very first time. And oh boy, what a year it's been. It's been so much fun. I am just so glad that you've been able to stay on with us. Um, You just add so much to the podcast. So Angela and I were talking earlier and I was talking, we were talking about the melting pot. If you've never been to the melting Mm. pot, it's a great date night restaurant. It's a fondue restaurant. And you start off with, uh, there's different options, but you can start off with some bread that you dip in different cheeses. And then you can choose, um, you have different options with the meat and vegetables and and what you're going to cook them in. And, or, you know, you can get fish or um, steak or what, you know, chicken. And, uh, and then at the end, there's um, the chocolate. You know, you get some little cake that you dip in the white chocolate, which is amazing. What's that white chocolate called? <laughs> Again? Amazing. Think- delicious. Um, yes. What do they call it there? I'm trying to think. Uh, they, is there a name besides white chocolate? Uh, okay. I thought there was some, spe- I thought it was some special white chocolate. We'll just call it the amazing white chocolate at at the melting pot but I was so I'm telling Angela that my son took his girlfriend there for their anniversary and I said they Mm. had a coupon and I said I know I said coupon funny only to find out that Angela says coupon correctly also (laughs) coupon I I need to inform our listeners that if you are a person who says coupon (laughs) <laughs> I I would like for you to please get out a piece of paper, go to your, you know, junk drawer or whatever you've got where you've got a pen and get that out and go over to your piece of paper, write down the word C-O-U-P-O-N and notice that it's not C-O-O, it's coupon. <laughs> Right, and it's not. It's not. It's. It's got a very specific sound with that C O U. My 
my husband and I have like a few things that we but we say differently, and mm. and some of this is regional. Yeah. Uh. So. Um, I say apricot, and mm. he says apricot, and I'm like, there's only one P. Mm. So if it was two P's, then I'd say apricot, but it's one P, so I say apricot. But I know a lot of people say apricot. <laughs> I have not thought about that one before. How do you pronounce C-A-R-A-M-E-L? Caramel. Oh, Colleen, we're different. I say so, caramel. Sometimes I say, so, you know, it's funny because I've thought about that one. Sometimes I will say caramel. But more often, I'll probably say caramel. Mm, yeah, my my parents actually say caramel. I'm not actually sure when I started saying caramel. So, but I do. That's how I say it. But well, hey, we're on the same page with coupon, and that's what matters. <laughs> okay, but this one I probably am just way out there, and don't ask me where I got this. But I say envelope instead of envelope, which Ooh. really is not fanatically correct. You know what, though, Colleen, that one sounds very classy. I'm going to sit at my desk and catch up on my correspondence. Could you please be a dear and hand me an envelope? (laughs) You know what? It was probably my time living in Lake Forest, Illinois. Yeah. Because I lived with a very wealthy family. Thank you. I think that's where I picked it up. I th- like yeah. I, when you were saying that I had like this vision of being in their house and the lady saying that to me. So thank you. <laughs> now I've got it. So all this is where you get to learn the important things of life. Theology gals. That's true. Theology gals, <laughs> pronunciation gals. <laughs> That's right. New podcast coming soon. Um, so we're going to talk about Lordship Salvation, and you probably knew that because you clicked on it. And some of you may be thinking, really, have you guys not spoken about this enough? We had the episode with John Fonville. We had, um, I think, twice where we kind of addressed it in the course of other episodes, um, just briefly. But there's a reason why we're going to really dig into it tonight. We're going to approach it a little differently than we have before. So when we talked with John Fonville, we approached it very uniquely. And when we addressed it on other times, we addressed um, some different aspects. But I'm still getting questions about it. And I realized there's so much confusion that I think it's important that we just really talk about it from start to finish, we talk about where the debate came from, why there's confusion, why some people in reform circles say I hold to it, and why some people in reform circles say they don't. And we're going to hit all of that. Now, if it were my choice, I probably would just read like the first chapter of Christ the Lord, the Reformation and Lordship Salvation, which again is a book that we highly recommend, edited by Michael Horton, many contributors. And I think half the episode probably will be both of us quoting the book (laughs) yeah it's a great book I've read it twice now it's a it's a um it's an easy read it's an enjoyable read it's not highly technical and yet it is very informative so you know for our listeners if you haven't read this book I think it's a great read um really important um for reformed believers I think to understand um, the issues relating to this conversation, because if you can, then it's really going to deepen your understanding of our reformed view of justification by faith alone. 
amen to that because I think that's what's that's what's really important. Just let's start out and talk about that you know where this all started. And I I did a bunch of research and uh, I found out that Lewis Berry Schaefer in his book in 1948, his systematic theology, that there was some reference to um, what we're going to talk about here. But the modern debate kind of started in 1988, when John MacArthur published the book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And then you had um, two other guys write books in response, Charles Ryrie, published So Great a Salvation, and then Zane Hodges published Absolutely Free. And so we're going to be talking about both sides, the gospel according to Jesus, MacArthur's position on one side, and then Charles Ryrie and Zane Hodges on the other. And while they both opposed MacArthur's view and had similar views themselves, Zane Hodges definitely had a more extreme view than Ryrie. Hmm. Right. So I guess let's dig into what is lordship salvation. Um, And of course, as you just said, we had two sides of the debate. So we had the John MacArthur side and we had the Ryrie and Hodges side. So lordship salvation is the John MacArthur side. And it is his response to the free grace doctrine. And that free grace doctrine was the Charles Ryrie and the Zane Hodges side. Okay, so since lordship salvation was actually a response to the free grace position. Let's start by talking about the free grace position and what it is. Um, You know, the free grace position argued by Ryrie and Hodges essentially boils down to um, what some of us would think of as sort of decisionalism today. Um, It includes the idea that one can be a carnal Christian, that you can make a decision for Christ, and that point in time involves faith, and there may never be any works that flow. Um, It involves sort of separating salvation from actually being a disciple of Christ. One way that they describe it in the book is that Zane Hodges kind of thought, you know, when you make that decision, and and Zane Hodges does come from an Arminian position, when you make that decision, it's kind of like the contract has been signed. So no matter what follows, that contract has been signed, and and it's good. So Mm -hmm, somebody mm -hmm. could go up at a Billy Graham crusade and decide for Jesus, and the next week decide decide he's really an atheist and be an atheist for the rest of his life and um, and be saved according to this this position. And one thing they also talk about in the book is that it's not really a free grace position. It's a lawless grace position. Mm, exactly, exactly. Um, it, one of the issues that um, Zane Hodges um, has in his system is that he reduces saving faith down to, and we're going to talk about um, later the Reformation view of what saving faith is. But Zane Hodges' view, uh, even though it's complex in the way that he describes it, essentially he reduces faith down to an intellectual assent. And in the the um, classic historic Reformed view, that is one aspect of saving faith, but it's not the whole. Um, the, the whole of saving faith. There are other aspects as well. Um, a, a quote from the book here, from this is from Zane Hodges, faith is the inward conviction that the testimony of God as revealed in the Bible is true. And Hodges adds, faith then is taking God at his word. Saving faith is taking God at his word in the gospel. It is nothing less than this, but it is also nothing more. 
And, you know, we believe that saving faith involves a transfer of my trust from myself to Christ. It's more than just intellectually agreeing to the fact. Ha, ha just said, says, you know, you were, what you were talking about, that it's a single act of trust mm-hmm. that saves. And so it's back to what I was saying that he thinks you, when you have that single act of trust and you make that decision, then then you are saved for good. But one of the things that they criticized um, Zane Hodges for is he was really promoting an, a type of antinomianism. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know what antinomianism, it means anti-law. And you might think of it in terms of somebody who says that they are a Christian and lives a very very lawless life, and they say, well, but Christ died for that. It's almost the very people Paul was talking to when he says, shall I go on sinning so that grace may abound? And Paul said, no, may it never be. But it's it's kind of that, that sort of attitude. Mm-hmm. I, I want to support what you're saying with another quote from the book. And, and as we said earlier, uh, most of our quotes are going to be from Christ the Lord, the Reformation and Lordship Salvation. This quote is talking about that um, John MacArthur was correct to push back and criticize Hodge's theology. Um, this says, while Reformation theology did indeed teach free grace, what MacArthur's opponents describe ought to be called lawless grace. It's, it's just antinomianism. MacArthur is correct in criticizing the rampant antinomianism of this doctrine. Where we would question him is not in his criticism of his opponents, but in his attempt to support his criticisms by appealing to the Reformation. And again, we're going to talk later about um, what that means by talking about what um, the historic Reformed definition of faith is and how that differs from John MacArthur. But um, it is true that John MacArthur was correct in pointing out error in the Ryrie and um, Hodges side. You know, you were talking, Colleen, about um, the Zane Hodges and Charles Ryrie free grace position and about how, you know, it it starts with a decision and really does not require any um, any works um, from the believer, you could uh, make it, become an atheist the next day and you would still be saved on the basis of that one decision. I've got a quote um, here um, about uh, the Zane Hodges view and describing that. And this says, once the gift of eternal life has been appropriated, there is no need to ever proceed a step further in the Christian life. Discipleship, defined as basically the experience of spiritual education, is optional. There is an obvious difference between the gift of life and being a pupil of Jesus Christ. Thus, one must believe in Christ as Savior by trusting in the truth of God's word on the matter, but one need not submit to Christ as Lord in the sense of becoming his disciple. Um, And just carrying that a little bit further, there's some um, treatment of certain... uh, scriptural passages, um, talking about what Jesus says himself in the Gospel of John, about discipleship and salvation. Um, and again, here's a little bit more analysis and some quotes of, of um, Zane Hodges. There is no necessary biblical connection between faith and works. One begins by faith and is saved eternally. Discipleship is optional. It is possible, Jesus is saying, in uh, this is in Zane Hodges' comments on Luke, 
that you might start out as a pupil, but that you might not be able to stay the course. You may not be able to finish. In fact, concludes Hodges, nowhere does the word of God guarantee that the believer's faith inevitably will endure. Since we are saved by faith, our decision, and receive the gift of eternal life at that moment, the believer's basic relationship to God is unaffected by the overthrow of one's faith. Only those who desire to progress in the faith need to work. So what is interesting to me and and um, a key point from these quotes is to think about the definition of faith that's going on here. And the mistake that Hodges is making is he is reducing faith to an intellectual assent. But beyond that, he is also reducing it to a point in time, something that happens one time and is not sustained. It's not anything that needs to be sustained. It just happens the one time and nothing else matters after that. Some people might be familiar with the higher life movement. And so this really is where he kind of sees sanctification as um, like a higher plane. So if a Christian has enough faith, then they'll be sanctified. There's these two separate things. There is getting saved that you decide as a decision, because it is very Arminian. In fact, he even uses um, Revelation 3.20, Jesus standing at the door of your heart, knocking, mm. and you know, won't you let him in, when that's really not about that. <laughs> so once you make that decision, then sanctification is like a, almost like a second blessing. Yeah. You know, if you have enough faith, then you can be sanctified. You don't need to be a disciple of Christ and submit to him. Um, to obey the law, any of those things, um, or you won't want to, you don't, you know, it's just you can get saved and nothing has to follow. And we know that this is very problematic. I did want to mention, because some people may be confused, um, Ryrie's version of free grace was a softer version of it than Hodges. He did not have the blatant antinomianism um, quite to the extent that Hodges did, although he was still problematic in there. Um, So something I want to bring up real quick, because I think this is very, very important. Before we kind of get to Lordship Salvation, we'll talk about both of them, is both sides tried to use the Reformers to uh, argue their position. So uh, I wanted to read a couple quotes. This is from a message from Michael Horton, which I will link in the episode notes. And he says, it's really hard to know exactly how to evaluate the participants in this debate because both sides, they're working from a non-reformed view. Not that we disagree on everything, but the way we put things together, the categories we use are so different. We on the reformed side are going to talk about, for instance, being united to Christ by faith and receiving the whole Christ for justification and sanctification. And I have um, another uh, quote on that from Rick Ritchie from the book. It is difficult to provide a balanced treatment of a subject in answer to an imbalanced question. If this is true, both both MacArthur and his opponents, by determining the meaning of the terms used in the debate according to the distinctive theological system that they share— have made it even more difficult for Reformation Christians to set forth an answer to the Lordship Salvation question. It is not easy to provide a relevant treatment on the subject when many of those who have followed this debate disagree on the meanings of crucial terms. So mm-hmm. let me give one example that, that we're going to see is when they talk about salvation. And so 
A lot of times in reform circles, when we talk about salvation, we're talking about justification, sanctification, glorification. We're, we're including different things in it. They're not always defining what they mean by salvation. So that, that would be one example. And we're just defining things differently. Even faith, mm-hmm. as you'll see, both Hodges and MacArthur are defining faith differently. So when they're talking about faith, they're talking about something different than we would be talking about in the Reformed camp. And what's really interesting to me about this debate just as a whole is, um, and we're going to talk in a little bit about um, the background of this debate being specifically dispensationalism, but um, there are so many flavors of lordship salvation. Just like there were flavors of the free grace position, there all of these doctrines are sort of being developed in response and back and forth in the context of the debate. And since neither side really is coming from the historic Reformed faith, they're using terms very differently. And, you know, where we have our historic creeds and confessions giving us definitions of things um, where, you know, we confess things with the church for hundreds of years. Um, And, um, you know, many of our Reformed confessions agree on what these words mean, and they've been agreed upon and accepted for a long, long time. In this debate, um, the Lordship, Salvation, and Free Grace debate, definitions are evolving, definitions are um, being debated even, and uh, this is something that is pointed out in the book, is that part of the difficulty here is that the definitions don't become agreed upon. They they are being developed to support different views, and, you know, Arminianism is part of the issue here. You know, some of these doctrines are being developed to support an Arminian view of salvation. And so what's really interesting to me about this is just the whole thing highlights to me how our theology really is a whole system. It it all works together. You know, we've talked before about how um, if we're a Calvinist and we hold to TULIP, really there is so much more in the Reformed faith. It's a whole system. It All of the doctrines kind of work together. And so um, you can see as if you pick up this uh, the book, uh, Christ the Lord, and read, it will become very obvious that you know, little parts and pieces are being lifted out of historic Reformed theology. But unfortunately, when you lift those out of the whole system, they come become divorced from other things that are very important to help those doctrines work. And they're lifting them out and using different definitions for some of those words. That's right. And and so they're 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 taking parts of it and then they're trying to um, fit them into a completely different framework, which is dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about lordship salvation now. And and just to be clear, MacArthur did not come up with that term. In fact, um, I've read that he wasn't really so crazy about it because even MacArthur said, um, we don't make Christ Lord, he is Lord. And so this was kind of originally started as a kind of um, slam on MacArthur's view. Uh, but it is something that has picked up and and people now use, um, you know, claiming it. And I want to talk about why some people say, I believe in Lordship Salvation. And I did a lot of reading. And one of the things that um, was said often is that a lot of people, when they say, I believe in Lordship Salvation, what they mean is I oppose Zane Hodge's position. 
and they don't necessarily fully understand the original MacArthur position. So I, I went online, and Angela and I can read a few of these just to see how various people defined it. And then we'll go and we'll talk about what it really was in the gospel according to Jesus. So Got Questions says, The doctrine of lordship salvation teaches that submitting to Christ as Lord goes hand in hand with trusting in Christ as Savior. Lordship salvation is the opposite of what is sometimes called easy believism or the teaching that salvation comes through an acknowledgement of a certain set of facts. Um, In Christianity Today, S. Lewis Johnson Jr. defines Lordship Salvation as the view that one cannot receive Christ simply as Savior, but must also give him total control of one's life. And if this is not done, one is not saved. Do you want to read a couple of them, Angela? Yeah. Bob Lyle on the Christian Research Institute website says, Lordship Salvation advocates say that in order to be saved, one must not only believe and acknowledge that Christ is Lord, but also submit to his lordship. In other words, there must be, at the moment one trusts in Christ for salvation, a willingness to commit one's life absolutely to the Lord, even though the actual practice of a committed life may not follow immediately or completely. Non-lordship proponents argue that such a pre-salvation commitment to Christ's lordship compromises salvation by grace. And then Theopedia says, Lordship salvation is the position that receiving Christ involves a turning in the heart from sin as a part of faith, a submissive commitment to obey Jesus Christ as Lord. It also maintains that progressive sanctification and perseverance must necessarily follow conversion. So there really is sort of um, uh, some flavors here. There's there's a range of what people think lordship salvation is, but I sort of see a theme here. Just like you said, there's a we're opposite of the Zane Hodges view, the free grace view, and then there's also uh, that underlying thread um, that submission and obedience is required. You know, I think it would be helpful to talk about some of um, what it is and how it is different from the Reformed position, and starting with a defin- our definition of faith, and how we, we've already talked about Zane Hodges, his definition of faith, but I'd like to talk about here the historic definition of faith next to how MacArthur defines faith. And Angela, what's the hist- what is the recognized historic understanding of how we define faith? So the historic reformed view of faith is that faith includes three elements. And that the three elements are notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Um, notitia is the intellectual element that involves understanding what the facts are. A census is an agreement to the facts. And fiducia, um, that final element, is an element of trust. Um, it involves placing my trust in what I, in that object of faith, which is Jesus Christ, instead of myself. The difficulty with the Lordship Salvation definition of faith is that... Um, MacArthur took those three elements and changed that third one, fiducia, um, in the historic 
Reformed faith. You can find it in um, the Westminster Catechism. Um, it talks about receiving and resting, um, even thinking about our membership vows. Um, it asks in one of our membership vows, do you um, receive and rest in Jesus Christ as he is presented to you in the gospel. That's actually kind of summarizing all three of those ideas. Receiving and resting is that fiducia element, and as he is presented to you in the gospel is picking up that noticia and a census, you know, that the facts are are said in the word of God, and you agree to the Christ that is presented to you in the scripture. Well, um, MacArthur took that third element, fiducia, that receiving and resting, and made it into a determination of the will to obey truth. And that is a direct quote from um, his original, um, The Gospel According to Jesus. And the difficulty with that definition is that it takes something passive where I am simply receiving Christ as he is presented, receiving a whole Christ. And it now makes me, um, my vo- the volition of my will, something that I do, my obedience is now imported into faith, and now faith is not faith anymore. It includes works. And at, at places, he also implies that repentance is a part of faith, and that's the same thing about what what you're describing there, that, that we suddenly do something as as part of faith. And so that actually is in um, opposition to what we call the Ordo Salutis, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. the order of salvation. And so we have we have an order of salvation, an order and repentance follows faith. Mm-hmm. And um, now some of these things may happen almost, you know, almost at the same time, but it's very important to distinguish these things and that there is a specific order that these things happen. So here's a quote um, from Kim Riddlebarger's essay in the book. He says, instead of arguing for a necessary connection between faith and repentance in the Ordo Salutis, so that's what we're saying is the historic Reformed faith necessarily connects faith and repentance, Um, He says, instead of doing that, that is, while faith is not repentance and repentance is not faith, one is not present in the life of a Christian without the other. Instead of making that argument, MacArthur defines faith itself as including repentance or as repentance or as obedience. And there is tremendous confusion here, even to the point that MacArthur misreads um, Lewis Burkhoff to make his own point. And um, you you can pick up that argument here in the book, but Lewis Burkhoff is a um, Reformed theologian um, with a very useful systematic, and um, part of MacArthur's argument was to take um, some of the uh, definitions from Burkhoff, and he did sort of change them up in a way that changes Um, the definition of faith, to include a determination to obey the truth. And I have a quote from Kim also that, um, and in the book, um, Kim Riddlebarger's chapter is specifically about what is faith. And he says, but you may ask, don't Protestants insist that when people exercise saving faith, they submit to Christ's lordship, are willing to obey him in all things and repent of their sins? Absolutely, yes. But notice that these categories are kept distinct. 
Christ. Faith links us to Christ. It is through faith that we are united to him, and thereby we receive his saving benefits by grace through faith. The Reformed, then, have historically linked faith, repentance, and obedience together, not calling the latter two elements within saving faith itself, but understanding them as corollaries within the Ordo Salutis. That is, one who has exercised faith in Christ and is united to Christ by that faith will repent and will struggle to obey and yield. But these things are not conditions for or component parts of faith itself. Yeah. Excellent quote. It's um, so funny. I know, Colleen, you pulled that quote out and I had the very next quote that I had underlined in my book is the exact same one, because this really is the crux of the issue, is that that definition of faith, you know, uh, it's it all comes back to that ordo salutis. So um, regeneration precedes faith, logically. Faith precedes repentance, logically. Um, repentance does not come first. Um, repentance is not collapsed within faith. They are separate and distinct, though one necessarily does follow the other. And this also plays into our understanding of faith alone. Tragically, and this is another quote from Kim Riddlebarger, tragically in struggling to combat the serious error of Hodge's antinomianism, MacArthur has produced some confusion regarding sola fide. For MacArthur's system, faith has been combined with obedience to form a kind of third thing that is neither faith nor repentance, but a combination thereof, a combination that implicitly denies the biblical essence of both faith and repentance. While avoiding the error himself, MacArthur is in danger of giving unintended aid to a kind of neonomianism, a new legalism, wherein obedience, repentance, and submission all acquire a status that is a direct challenge to faith alone. So when you think about faith alone during the time of the Reformation, it was based on a certain um, definition of faith. And so now... If you redefine faith, it really changes the meaning of faith alone. Mm, that's right. And what, you know, it's interesting to remember that this classic doctrine uh, from the Reformed faith on what saving faith is, and I'll just say it again in a slightly different way we've got the three elements knowledge, which is an intellectual grasp of the facts. Assent, the conclusion that these facts are true, and trust, the conviction that these true facts are true in my case and for my salvation. So that's the classic um, historic Reformed definition of faith. This is set up against the doctrines from the Council of Trent. And that is from when the Catholic Church denounced the Reformation and said, if anybody teaches justification by faith alone— they're anathema. Well, guess what? The Council of Trent defines faith very similarly to Zane Hodges. It's an intellectual grasp, but then says that you cannot be saved unless you are infused with righteousness and are producing good works. And so the net result is then that that definition from the Council of Trent ends up matching the result of mixing obedience and faith and faith together um, as the requirements for our saving faith. It, it produces a very similar result. It is a shake to the assurance of the, the believer. It produces continually looking at my own works for my uh, assurance of salvation. Um, it produces a lot of similar results. 
Yeah, and they they talk about that in the book also just this constant introspection mm. and an an over emphasis on looking to myself for my assurance. And we've quoted R. Scott Clark on here so many times from his article on assurance, which I'll link in the episode notes. And and he says that our good works may strengthen our assurance, but Christ alone is the ground of our assurance. And, mm. and that's, I think, a theme that even did come out of the Reformation, an emphasis in, in Christ alone. If you think about what Martin Luther went through and his struggle with his assurance, it was understanding that he could fix his eyes on Christ's finished work that finally gave him that assurance of salvation. Mm. Amen. Here's a wonderful quote from Michael Horton in his chapter called Union with Christ. While none of our righteousness is our own, Christ is. While none of our holiness belongs to us, properly speaking, Christ does. The devils know that Christ is righteous, but they do not, cannot believe that he is their righteousness. It is essential, therefore, to point unbelievers and believers alike to Christ outside of their own subjective experiences and actions. And, you know, that's something we might even have to do a whole episode on sometime as union with Christ. Um, just an important topic to understand correctly. Also, I have had people that have will go and tell people, oh, theology gals is against lordship salvation. And I talked about this on another podcast where they'll go and tell people that are going to be guests on our podcast, did you know theology gals is against lordship salvation? And they're really implying that we take the Zane Hodges side. Mm. And it's so important for us to know we don't have a dog in this fight. Mm. This isn't this isn't our fight. And this was a debate between dispensationalists, both sides rest on a dispensational framework. And MacArthur himself, I'm going to quote John MacArthur here, said, yet the fact remains that virtually all the champions of no lordship doctrine are dispensationalists. No covenant theologian defends the no lordship gospel. Mm. Yes. Um, MacArthur also says, one of the most confusing elements of the entire lordship controversy involves dispensationalism. Some have supposed that my attack on no lordship theology is an all-out assault against dispensationalism. That is not the case. It may surprise some readers to know that the issue of dispensationalism is one area where Charles Ryrie, Zane Hodges, and I share common ground. We are all dispensationalists. And I'm going to I'm going to quote Rick Ritchie again. I actually talked to Rick today and said, we're going to quote you on this episode because he's a friend of mine. Um, Okay, so he says, must one submit to the lordship of Christ in order to be saved? What often remains unnoticed in the current debate is while the two sides differ in their answer to this one question, they both come to the question with a common theological background dispensationalism, which determines in advance the possible range of answers. We might call the proponents of the two positions dispensational lordship salvationists and dispensational decision salvationists. Before we offer our support on one side of the debate, we ought to take notice of the fact that both parties occupy the same theological continent and have pledged allegiance to the same doctrinal constitution. The better question for us might not be which side shall we support, but how can we avoid avoid the minefields of both positions and find our way back to our true country? Mm. 
I love that quote. I do too. I that's yeah. exactly. And when we say find our way back to our true country, we are at the end. We're going to end with going back to the reformed confessions. But this is this is why we don't have a dog in the fight because we don't we don't come to the table with a dispensational um, framework for our theology. Exactly, and we have our. Um, historic Reformed faith that is already well-developed. It's not antinomian, and it's not legalist. It's already well-developed. We have our Ordo Salutis. We have our doctrine of justification by faith alone. We have doctrines uh, regarding sanctification. All of these things are already well-developed and have historic Reformed answers in our confessions and in our catechisms. And so, we, I think I said it this way on Twitter one time, if you um, hold to the historic Reformed faith, you really have no need to play in the um, dispensational sandbox on the Lordship Salvation conversation. You don't need that to say that you hold to Lordship or you hold to the other side, because both of those things are coming from a theological framework that is really at odds with what we hold to in the historic Reformed faith. And we are in agreement with MacArthur in criticizing the antinomianism of of Zane Hodges. We're in agreement. We think he was right to stand up against what Zane Hodges was said. Yes. Uh, so one of the other problems, I mean, I really I think two of the, the primary problems that, that we're going to address tonight with it, the first being defining faith. You, you can't hold to the Reformed Confessions and hold to MacArthur's definition of faith. It, it's, not, it's not possible. But the other problem is the confusion of law and gospel. And I spoke with a friend who's a dispensationalist, and you know he said, you're right, we do not distinguish between law and gospel in the way that the Reformed do. But this is very, very obvious in the gospel, according to Jesus, in regards to um, two different sections. One of them is when he talks about the rich young ruler, and one of Mm -hmm. them is when he talks about the Sermon on the Mount. And we would call those law, and um, MacArthur calls them gospel. It is important to note that sometimes you can find both law and gospel in a passage. But the way mm-hmm. that MacArthur approaches this, that's not what he is talking about. So let's talk first about the rich young ruler. Because in the rich rich young ruler, you know, he, he wants to know what must I do to be saved. And and Christ tells him, you know, sell all that you have and, and so on. And that's not... There, that's not gospel. There is no gospel given there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we talk about the law being do this and live. That's straight law. That's straight do this and live. Right. And it's very interesting that um, f- for me, uh, it this issue is um, another way that we can see how dispensationalism is is driving the hermeneutic behind how this passage is understood. You know, we would take a look at what Jesus told the rich young ruler, and we would say that he is giving him law to drive him to Christ. And he is supposed to hear, sell everything that you have, and hear, wow, this is impossible to do. And this is supposed to drive him to Christ and that he would put his trust in Christ. Um, MacArthur sees what Christ tells the rich young ruler as gospel and that the rich young ruler goes away sad because 
he was unwilling to submit. Therefore, he did not accept the gospel. And so we would see those as two different kinds. We would have a completely different interpretation because we are coming from that Reformed hermeneutic of the law commands and the gospel promises, whereas dispensationalism takes a look at this passage and places it in the dispensation of grace and therefore says, well, it can't be law. Um, you know, it, and this is discussed um, in, in the book um, that we've been talking about, that dispensationalism takes that um, the law and where we say the law commands the gospel promises, in dispensationalism, the law would be a dispensation of law, a period of time. And anything that's really going on in that period of time that would be the dispensation of law really doesn't apply anymore. And so because of that hermeneutic, we would look at what um, the rich young ruler said with a dispensational hermeneutic and say, well, it has to be gospel because it still applies and it's in the dispensation of grace. So it really does have to do with that hermeneutic and how you approach the passage. Um, so as Colleen was saying, in dispensationalism, there really is not that law-gospel distinction and in how we understand the two different kinds of words that are found in Scripture. And let me explain kind of how um, MacArthur does, how, how this kind of works out in what Angela was talking about from Rick Ritchie from the book. The conclusion is further supported by the very title of his chapter on the sermon, The Way of Salvation. MacArthur is compelled by other texts, like 1 John 1, 8, to admit that Christians will still sin, but says that the Sermon on the Mount, that's the one we're going to be talking about now, being part of the gospel demands wholehearted discipleship along with faith as a condition of salvation. He says that this is still all of grace because God gives us both the faith and the obedience. So because they're viewing this as in the dispensation of grace. So he'll say, yes, it's still all of grace, but then there's this demand of wholehearted discipleship along with faith as a condition of salvation. And this is just very problematic, especially in view of what we t- believe to be to be biblical. And one thing that I've seen happen, and this e- is even discussed in the book, is that people will come back and be like, I don't know if I had this wholehearted submission to obedience, to discipleship when I came to Christ. Because guess what? I have news for everyone right here. It is simply not possible. Mm. Not possible to have a wholehearted commitment to obedience yeah. as part of our faith. It's just, there. there is no one that can have a wholehearted. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, as we mature and as the Lord does sanctify us, if we are really examining ourselves about that, it's very easy to become discouraged, actually, because I I become more and more aware of my sin and the the fact that I, I don't have wholehearted obedience to the Lord. I don't have wholehearted submission. I am not fully committed. It you know, the more I examine myself, the more I am disappointed that I, I'm not a great follower. And the only remedy there is to look to Christ and his obedience. Yeah, because the closer we draw to Christ, 
the more we see his holiness and our sinfulness. Mm -hmm. And so even though we are being sanctified, Mm -hmm. we are growing in obedience. We're seeing our sin even more so. We're we're feeling convicted and and coming to repentance for things that maybe we didn't even think about before. Right. So how this relates to the Sermon on the Mount, here is another quote um, of Rick Ritchie. MacArthur has done a service by insisting on the relevance of the Sermon on the Mount for the present age. He has correctly identified the sermon's audience. What he has missed is its primary purpose. Like the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, the Sermon on the Mount was given to let us know of our need for a savior. Its primary purpose is to condemn, is to condemn, not to save. So when we say that the Sermon on the Mount is law, what we mean is that its purpose is to drive us to Christ and show us our need for a savior. And we do believe in, and we've done a whole episode on this, that one of the uses of the law, which we call the third use, is how the Christian is now to live. Mm. And so we absolutely believe that the Sermon on the Mount is useful uh, in the third use of the law. But we're talking very specifically about faith right here and the gospel. Mm -hmm. And it's it's law, and it, it has those different uses, but it is not the gospel. Remember, the gospel promises... And, and the law demands. And that, that's a good way. Yeah. Look through scripture. Does that promise or does it demand? Amen. Absolutely. And, you know, thinking about that third use of the law and how we do, you know, as believers, we produce fruit. Um, I want to read again from Michael Horton's essay on union with Christ. He says, regeneration or the new birth is the commencement of this union. God brings this connection and baptism even before there is any sign of life. God made us alive even when we were dead. That's a quote of Ephesians 2.5. The first gift of this union is faith, the sole instrument through which we live and remain on this vine. But this is a rich vine filled with nourishing sap to produce an abundance of fruit. Though we are not attached to nor remain attached to this vine by the fruit, what branch depends on the fruit, those who are truly members of Christ inevitably produce fruit. That's actually a great segue, Angela, into what we're going to talk about right now, which is going back to our true country, because that that really kind of gets us started off on that. All right. Well, what do we have in our historic Reformed confessions and catechisms that addresses these doctrines? I kind of went through, since we don't have time to read everything, but I thought really on this, starting starting with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, because we have what is justification, what is adoption, what is sanctification, and what are the benefits um, that flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification. Mm. So what, and you know, for people that are tuning in and they're like, why, why are you quoting the Reformed Confessions? Why not just quote scripture? We do believe that the Reformed Confessions are a faithful summary of scripture. And uh, I always link when we quote this, a site where you can read the scripture, the proof text to go along with each of the catechism questions. So what is mm. justification? Well, justification 
this is from Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 33. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And that goes back to the receiving that you were talking Mm, about earlier. Moving through the Westminster Shorter, we have question 34, what is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And, you know, I even think about Ephesians 1, you know, in um, thinking about that question. Uh, And then what is sanctification? And this is so, so important. We've done a full episode on this. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Do you see a theme here? (laughs) All of these are works Mm -hmm. of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So this is the thing, um, brothers and sisters. You will be sanctified if you are justified because Mm. the Lord is sanctifying us. There is no Zane Hodges, I'm going to be justified and then go on and live a completely lawless life. That it's just simply not possible. If you are justified, you will be sanctified. Amen. In question 36 of the Westminster Shorter, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. That's that's really powerful. A lot of times I don't read that one. Mm. And, um, I have to spend some time thinking, yeah. thinking about that. Amen. Just Heidelberg Catechism, real quick, because we talked a lot about what faith and Heidelberg Catechism. True, what is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. And this is really consistent with that historic definition of faith. And you notice Mm. what isn't part of true faith. Repentance is not part of true faith. Mm. That is something separate. Mm -hmm. Um, Determination of the will to obey is not part of true faith. And so we absolutely believe that these things, you, you cannot... Um, be justified without being sanctified, which means the Lord is working in you to um, that you may die more and more to sin and live more to righteousness, that that absolutely will happen. But it's so important to distinguish between each of these things. We talk about distinguishing between justification and sanctification because it is important that we distinguish between these. Amen. I do love um, the Heidelberg um, and just as you said, I love this answer. It it seems like it would be hard to improve on the language of the Heidelberg. I feel that in just about every question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism. I just love the Heidelberg. But um, here, just as you said, it really lines up well with that three-pronged uh, definition of faith 
that uh, of what it includes and what it does not include. So it's a very beautiful, helpful definition. One thing I did years ago that has just, when I'm feeling discouraged and maybe even um, for those struggling with assurance, and that is question one of the Heidelberg, what is my only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? And it just goes on from there as a reminder of the gospel, and it's just so incredibly comforting to me. Mm. Um, you know, even in the midst of suffering that I've gone through, I will recite that in my head. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and that he is faithful to me. And you know what that means? That he is faithful to sanctify us and to work in our lives and to walk with us and to comfort us and all of all of those things. And because of his grace and his love towards us. I know we've gone even maybe a a tad long, um, but I want to just remind everyone, and we could have said so much more because I had probably a bunch more quotes that I had outlined. (laughs) And and so we've had to rush through some of this just because of time. I will just say to our listeners, um, Colleen is so humble here to not point out she has been studying the Lordship Salvation debate since it really started, and um, she won't call herself this, but I will. Colleen is the expert that I know personally in this debate, and I don't know very many people who know more about it than her. So, yes, she's got a plethora of information, and we barely scratched the surface. Highly recommend getting the book, Christ the Lord, and, and checking it out. And there's so many more resources pointed out in the book as well that you can track all of those down um, if you really want to know every in and out. I'm not sure I'm really an expert. I've just read the book three times. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, and I actually, I think I maybe shared this before, but I remember in high school, I remember where I was standing talking to um, a high school buddy of mine that I'm still friends with. And he was explaining to me about this lordship salvation debate. And at the time, I I just said, well, I don't know if I agree with either side. And I wasn't even reformed yet. Um, and so then when I became reformed and I saw this book, Christ the Lord, the Reformation and Lordship Salvation, I was so excited. I think that I had to, it was like a paper catalog um, that I had. And I had to like fill it out, like one copy of Christ the Lord and add up how much um, shipping and handling would be and write a check and mail it in an envelope. <laughs> oh, an envelope. Ah, yes. I hope that you address the envelope in the italic hand. And there's a, just a, a few things to wrap up that I wanted to mention. I have a couple things. If you want to know more and listen to some people discuss it um, even better, uh, there's a message from Michael Horton that he did. I think it's on the Office Hours podcast. I'm linking this in the episode notes. Definitely worth uh, listening to. And the other thing is Reformed Brotherhood podcast did an excellent, excellent episode on this. And one thing that they talk about, and this is why I'm going to highly recommend listening to it, is when the gospel according to Jesus first came out, some of the reform guys did go to MacArthur and say, you know, we really think you need to rethink some of these things. And he did make changes in 
in further copies, but not quite enough. And those are some of the things that we've discussed here. But what they show is they go through some more recent MacArthur quotes to show that this is indeed still what he believes. And now I don't want anyone to think that we are saying that MacArthur is a false teacher, that he has a false gospel or anything like that. I have much respect for MacArthur. And he has been a faithful pastor and preacher of the word for so many years. And so we are definitely not saying that. But what we are saying is that the reform position, when we go back to our true country, neither Lordship Salvation nor the Zane Hodges position is consistent with our reformed theology, but that we deal with these things, that we have a response to Zane Hodges already. And I think that some people claim Lordship Salvation because they're so opposed to Zane Hodges, as everyone should be. But we have a response to Zane Hodges right in our Reformed Catechism and Confessions. Yes, and amen. Completely agree. And we do just want to proclaim at the end that Jesus is Lord. I, I always talk about how I had the shirt that was popular. It was actually during the whole controversy. <laughs> I was maybe wearing it at school that day that I wore in high school, Lord of all or not at all. And guess what? He's Lord, whether you make him Lord or not, whether you submit to him or not, he is, he is Lord. And that we strongly proclaim. So we appreciate you joining us. I did want to just mention a few things. We've got some great episodes coming up. I always like to tell you guys about those. We are going to be doing quite the episode in a couple of weeks about MOPs, Mothers of Preschoolers. And uh, you want to tune in for that because we have been researching this for a while and we've got a gal from our group who did so much research she's the one that really has done the research we just got to read it and we're going to have her on because there's been several people that have messaged us saying what do you think about mops and I think Angela and I are like I, I don't know <laughs> we're not part of it we haven't looked into it and so this has been very good I, and I think it does fit in with our with our call for women to study the Word of God and be discerning. And so we'll be talking about that. Um, we're also going to be doing a review of a very popular book for Christian women right now. And this is not another Rachel Hollis type review. And I'm not even going to say what book it is. But it is a book that is popular in reform circles. And we've gotten a lot of gals in our group asking about it. And we said, you know what? We need to do a review on that. And we're actually going to have another person as a guest who is writing an extensive review of the book. And it, and even when it comes out, you might think, oh, I'm not interested in that. There's actually going to be a lot good in there just for Christian women in general. So stay tuned for those. And an episode on church history will be coming up sometime in the next month. We've been wanting to do that for a while, and we finally got a great guest to do that episode. So we just appreciate everyone tuning in and some of the messages that we receive that are so encouraging. So we will be back next week.